and welcome to Policy for the People, the official podcast of the Joseph Rainey Center for Public Policy. We're coming to you today on our podcast where we try to connect the American people with the inner workings of the public policymaking process in Washington, D.C. I am Sarah Hunt, the CEO and president of the Joseph Rainey Center, and today I'm so excited we have a person who's had a remarkable career of influence on uh, Capitol Hill and in the public sector here to join us. His name is David Rare, or I should say Dr. David Rare. He has a PhD in economics, and if that isn't intimidating enough with brilliance, (laughs) um, he's had quite the distinguished career, including serving as the CEO of the National Beer Wholesalers Association, the CEO of the National Broadcasters Association, and he has led academic programs at both George Washington University and George Mason University, where he is currently at the Shar School of Public Policy. Uh, prior to going into the association and academic world, he had a great career on Capitol Hill and in politics, and he is a graduate of St. John's College in Minnesota, which you absolutely cannot spend any time with him without learning. Welcome to Policy for the People, Dr. Rare. I'm so glad you're here with us. Well, thanks for ha- having me, Sarah, and it's great to be with you. So I think you've had you know, such an interesting and varied career, and you've also been a person who so often has had to connect, whether it's a member of Congress or members of a trade association, you know, with their constituencies about what's going on in policy in D.C. and how it affects their lives. You're also a professor, so you've you know, mentored a lot of young people, including me, when I was one of your students at George Washington. Um, little known fact, Dr. Rare and I have traveled the world together through the GW political management program. I figured I would start off with something that I appreciated when I was one of your students and that I put into practice and has been helpful which is that when you work in politics, sometimes your boss will tell you to or ask you to do something crazy. So you need to be financially prepared to tell your boss that's not a good idea and get fired. And you always suggested that we should have, well, I'm not going to use the word, but, you know, goodbye money is what we'll call it. This is a family show. Um, And uh, how did you come to have that perspective? It was always something important that you you know, would share with your students. And I think it really is true because when you work in politics, you need to be working for someone where you're aligned in values and strategy and will execute what they want you to do. So if you could give us some background on that and elaborate, I think it would be a great place to start the conversation. Well, after I graduated from St. John's University many years ago and came to Washington and started working on Capitol Hill, I met a guy who became a good friend of mine who's a Vietnam War veteran, worked for a member of Congress, and one day he said, David, do you have any goodbye money? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you should take a month or two of your salary, put it in the bank, because sometimes when you're in politics, your bosses will ask you to do things that make you a little queasy, that make you uncomfortable or violate some cultural values that you have. And then you could just walk into our office and say, goodbye, I'm leaving. And you leave and you have enough financial wherewithal to get another job because he stressed to me, you don't want to sell your soul to no matter what party or what people in elected office, because power has a way of corrupting people. They think they're better than other folks. They get infected with hubris. They suddenly are demanding. And it's just a very unpleasant experience. So he said, get that goodbye money, 
you probably will never have to use it. But if you do, you got it and you don't have to worry. And I always from the, after I heard that and seeing members of Congress who I might add for the listening audience are just like America. You know, there are nice people. There are not so nice people. There are tall people. There are horizontally challenged people. There are smart people. And I'm always respectful of them. But let's just say there are some people who are maybe challenged with intelligence working on Capitol Hill as members of Congress. So I did that. I tell all my students that because one thing that I've really kind of perpetually thought of in my career is I have a set of beliefs which you may or may not agree with. And I'd never want to violate those because that makes me who I am, being authentic and being real and never having to compromise what you at the the deepest part of your heart or soul really believe in. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, in in politics, especially some of those entry level, you know, they are low paying. So, you know, but even as you start out, if you can be thinking about, uh, long-term and practicing, even saving a tiny bit, even if it's a, a right. dollar here and a dollar yeah. there, yeah. over the years, it can accumulate. As an economist, people who listen to this will under, understand the power of interest in that dollar or the $10 or $15. I have four kids now. I tell them, you need to start opening IRAs, put away a little be- little a week just to get trained at putting a little a week. And but before you're in your late 20s or early 30s, you'll see, hey, I've really saved a lot. You don't get the coffee from Starbucks every day. Maybe you miss it once or twice a week and put that money in a bank account or some financial inst- measurement instrument. And I'm sorry. For all of my fellow millennials out there, I just want you to know he did not say stop being poor, stop going to Starbucks. He said every now and then don't get the coffee and save a couple of dollars and invest it. Right. That's all. That's right. Because, you know, we want to acknowledge that it is hard in some of those jobs when you're starting in politics. Um, you know, you can't you don't necessarily have that luxury. But one of the things in politics is that when you are when you are that staff assistant or that lower level um, aide, you're often not the person who's going to be forced to work on something that's uncomfortable or make that call. So you probably will have a few years to to develop goodbye money. Right. Um Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any stories or examples of a time in your career where your values came to bear in a policy issue in a way that you're proud of and that helped you navigate and, you know, served as a guide for decision making in a way that had a really positive outcome? Yeah, actually a couple and even including one most recently in what I'm doing now at George Mason University. Uh, So I come from the Chicago suburbs. My father was a first generation American. We were working class people. I remember my mother and father had to clip coupons in order to go to the grocery store to buy things because they we had a very kind of lean existence, lived in a five room house. I had a bro- older brother who unfortunately passed away many years ago, but it was always about trying to fulfill the American dream, working hard, saving, treating people with respect, being kind of inclusive and open towards other people and their ideas. But I remember going to Capitol Hill my, when I was first working up there, and I'd see these members of Congress sitting around, and they'd say things like, well, we've got this program. And then another member would say, well, do you have enough money for it? And then someone would pipe up and say, 
well, we might be a little short. And they would just go, well, let's just make it $100 million more. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know what my father has to go through as a postman to make $1,000 more, let alone spending $100 million more? So that really infused into me this financial stewardship of other people's money. One thing about Congress, which I think is not controversial, but some of your folks may not disagree with, I believe that we need to have accountability and transparency because every dollar that Congress spends is a dollar that an American allows them to spend by paying their taxes. So we should be really careful about where we're spending money and what we're doing with it. So that happens maybe a few years ago. But now at George Mason, I came across a technology called robotic process automation, which is using automation to substitute for menial and tedious things people do in all institutions. Like imagine somebody who spends all their days typing in numbers in an Excel spreadsheets for their company or somebody who can it, can it do my laundry for me? Well, I probably will at some point when they add AI and machine learning, as long as your lawn, your machine can take artificial intelligence, but imagine how much singularity come quickly. Right, right. How much quicker and better if we could get into the public sector, this RPA, so we don't burden people who work in government with like mundane tasks. And we can just go through lists of people like veterans who are waiting to get their veterans benefits. I think we're still months, if not years behind in inputting people, but RPA and its effective use probably can reduce that to a matter of weeks or not, or, or days. And I'm all for that. It doesn't really, it pays for itself quickly. And then all the people who are doing all the inputting, then we can maybe make their jobs more interesting. So they get focused on, are the programs really working? Are we feeding the people we're supposed to be feeding? You know, rather than just, I'm just sitting in front of this computer and stare at it all day, because if it was me, I'd probably kill myself because it would be so tedious and boring. And, and that's I'm, an economist saying that. Right, so right. that means something. Yeah. Yeah. So those kind of things where, how can we be smarter? How can we be more efficient, driven by this passion to be great and outstanding stewards of other people's money as taxpayers? What do you make of the current situation around the negotiations on President Biden's Build Back Better plan? Um, I'm sure you have some insights there. Yes, yes. And again, you know, I'm also a big believer in free speech. So I think we have to really celebrate that as Americans, which means you and I might not agree all the time, or many of your listeners and I might not agree all the time, but we should try to figure out how do we have a dialogue and understand each other so we can make the country as a unified people better. But my analysis if it would be so boring if we agreed on everything. Right, right. I mean, I don't agree with my wife on anything. We've been married for a lot of years. Um, But and I say that only because we are currently spending a million dollars a minute, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, I know we have a lot of needs in this country, but we're spending a lot of money. Frankly, we don't have. And if we continue to do this. Yeah, we'll be stewarding the the money the government of China lets us spend when they lend to it. Right. Or we'll have people's money or we'll have to inflate the currency and basically drive everyone's personal value, Mm. their savings in banks, their stock market, their IRAs basically into the ground like Germany found after the First World War. And we've seen in other countries 
when they just lose control, physical control of their budgets. So that worries me about the plan in just in general. Mm -hmm. Secondly, we don't really know the specifics. And Mm -hmm. you think maybe having people who are more business oriented and less political would want to say, okay, we want to do the Green New Deal. That's going to cost us X. And we want to do pre-K and that's going to cost us Y. And then add it all up and come up with a number rather than starting off by saying we're going to spend $3.5 trillion and looking for things to put in because some of the stuff that's in there now is kind of crazy in my mm-hmm. view. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're even in that transportation bill, which is less controversial and has more of a bipartisan element behind it. There are some things like, I don't know, 600000 for tr- for ensuring that we have equity in tree plantings. And I'm like, okay, we can have equity in tree plantings, but you know, some parts of the country, you go to Northern Minnesota, only pines, they call it the green curtain up there because only pines thrive. And if you try to put in oak trees, they die. So we have to be, you know, kind of, I just think that's kind of silly. And if people want to do that themselves with their own money or form a nonprofit to do that, I think that's great. But this social engineering of everything for equity's sake, I don't think it's a good thing because we're never going to have equal outcomes. We're all different. In my view, I'm a religious person. You know that. We all have God-given strengths and weaknesses. We're not always going to end up in the same place. And I think the Congress has to recognize that when they're putting these programs together. So I think the accounting's bad. Secondly, now that the Democrats who control the House and the Senate and the White House know they're missing those two votes, They're going to start playing games with spending. We're going to put the program in, but we're only going to fund it for one year. Knowing that Mm. once you get a program in, I mean, we have programs from the First World War that we're still spending money on because no one puts an end date on them. And then people kind of get not addicted, but people become reliant on them. And it's very hard to get rid of them. So there'll be some fiscal games on spending. And then the other thing about the Congress, which I've found over the years, and again, people may disagree with me, is we as we get towards the end, everybody wants to be the hero. You know, why do we always go through these? We're going to bankrupt the country. We're going to not have a budget. And then the senators come out, wring their hands and go, well, once again, we saved America. So they can go home that nine pat themselves on the shoulders for saving America, where if they just did their work like normal people do every day, you know, I think the country would be a lot better off. But, you know, you interact, you put politics in there and everybody's looking for an angle and see how they could get reelected or move from the House to the Senate or from the Senate to the presidency. So that I think further complicates things. But I think it's going to be hard for the president because his ratings are slipping now because of some different issues going on in the country and the world. And I think Democrats in particular are going to go, okay, I'm going to be up for reelection in another two, another year. Do I really want to ride this horse or do I want to be a little more independent so I can tell my constituents, you know, I don't vote lockstep with the president of either party, as a lot of Republicans had to consider when Trump was president, the former Hmm. president. Just for everyone out there, the last point that Dr. Rare made was about the debt ceiling and, you know, continuing resolutions for spending when they haven't passed a budget. I frequently will see a lot of gamesmanship on Capitol Hill between the majority and the minority party about accomplishing those basic tasks of government. And I, I do agree with you. I think that most of America would rather they work together and made that not a cliffhanger. Right. Right. But we have to have some limit because if we didn't have a limit at all, it would just go crazy. 
Mm. I mean, think about your, you know, with the people who are listening to this podcast, think about your own life. And I would argue as an economist, it's always easier to spend other people's money than your own money. And what the Congress faces is spending everybody else's money, not their own money. So do you think that the spending aspects of Congress, which I think most Americans probably don't realize that spending is a huge part of what Congress does with the appropriations process and the budget. One of the things that we do at the Rainy Center Freedom Project, which is the C4 sister organization of the Joseph Rainey Center for Public Policy, is we actually engage in that appropriations process uh, to you know, help members of Congress make good decisions about how to spend money in ways that are pro-growth and, and pro-innovation because they, they do, they have tons of money that they spend. I mean, billions and billions and hundreds of billions of dollars uh, that Congress spends every year in this pot here and that pot there. And they do actually rely on the input from stakeholders, whether it's advocacy organizations or nonprofits or um, local cities or local governments in their districts. It's very important, but I don't think many people, you know, in everyday America understand what a big part of Congress's responsibility that is and how it affects their life. Right. Did you have any, did you have any experiences in politics in your career that, that might illustrate that for our listeners? Yeah, I had a great one. So for many years, I was associated with the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, which is JDRF. It's a nonprofit group that's dedicated to erasing diabetes, especially for young children. You know, they don't do anything. These kids don't do anything. It's genetic, but they then have to take shots. And many of your listeners who may know diabetics or who may have family members or diabetics, it's a really bad thing to have. And they never did something bad to get it. So about a couple of years ago, they were raising money and they match whatever the government gives them for research and scientific innovation. And they had raised about $100 million, $200 million, and we wanted to get a match. And that's when I went in to see members of Congress and would say, you know, we're putting our, our money where our mouth is, but we think that 400 is better than 200. You know, the more money we have for research, the more research, because we're not sure how we're going to solve this. We haven't had a lot of breakthroughs yet, but we're getting there. We have a pancreas now that's automated that can be used on people so they're not relying on giving themselves shots multiple times a day. But having said that, and I had to go ask members for money, and I would always say, you know, we're putting our own money up first. We would like to get money from the government. It affects 6 million people in America, which are dispersed in a, a number of different communities, and we think it's the right thing to do. And I had one member say to me, well, David, you make a good point, but I want to have all the health health issues all bundled together in one appropriation and not pick, you know, the cancer people versus the diabetes people versus the, you know, name your bad disease people and have them fighting with each other on the money. And I said, that I sounds understand. unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't I want to do that. that. But after he told me that, and he's a very nice guy, I then called the JDRF people and I said, you know, we've got to have make sure our people influence this member with our tools so we can get him to go, yeah, I think that the money for the Diabetes Foundation is really important. So they had parents meet with them, children meet with them. And I remember one story that they really relayed to me is that 
they were meeting, I think, in the district office somewhere in America. And the member said to one of the kids, what is it like being diabetic? And the, the young person said, you know, I have to test my blood sugar three times a day. I take multiple shots. Sometimes I go not into coma, but I pass out. I have to go to the hospital. And afterwards, the member looked at her and he's crying. And this guy is not a crier because he was so moved by this person. And he just said, "Okay, I'm with you because I understand how important this is. And that was just a great example of having the local people dealing with their local representative, telling their story in a very authentic way, which really made it different. I was proud I could be a part of that. No, that's great. One of the things that they have found consistently at the Congressional Management Foundation is that over 90% of the time, if you a member of Congress moves on a tough issue, it's because of that authentic, compelling narrative from a colleague, a constituent, a family friend that is the key factor in getting them to change their mind or to take action. You know, they're people just like the rest of us, as you said earlier. Right, right. And you know, we're all moved by compelling stories. So if you are working on an issue in your community and you have a compelling messenger and you have a compelling story around it, you know, that's a great thing to put in front of a political decision maker. That's right. That's right. And I might I might just jump in here and say, you need to be involved. You know, you read a lot. I saw a statistic uh, earlier today that trust in government is falling. We don't want our government to not be our government because bad things will happen to everybody. We want to be have faith in government institutions. We want to work with them. And the best way to do that is by getting engaged. It doesn't mean you have to sell your soul, be in politics if you don't like politics. But, you know, go visit a member of Congress or if you see someone at your church or synagogue who is an elected official, even if mm-hmm. it's the mayor of your town, just say, you know, I really appreciate what you're doing unless the person's really obnoxious then I would just wave to him and walk by. But most elected officials, I think, are pretty earnest, but sometimes Mm -hmm. just getting on the wrong direction. Be nice to them and just say, you know, this is really important. I know you're busy doing a lot of things, but you just need to know how our community feels about this. And you'll get their time, their attention. Mm -hmm. And believe me, it really works. Yeah, elected officials, you know, they many do view themselves really as public servants. You know, we see the kind of the caricature of politicians. We see, uh, you know, the people who have used public office to just make a platform for themselves. But most folks, especially, you know, your state representative or your mayor, or your city councilor, you know, they're doing work that, you know, often isn't paid or if it is, isn't paid very well. And they're doing it to serve the community. And I think that's important to remember, you know, just like you said earlier, it, you know, you've been married to your wife for decades and you don't agree with her all the time. Uh, so you can't imagine that you'll agree with your elected official all the time either. And it's important to keep in mind that they are uh, their people. You know, don't do the, like, you're not going to be very persuasive if you follow them into a bathroom as we just right. saw happened in Arizona. Right. right. Um, that usually doesn't change their mind, but you know, maybe if you got time to talk to Kristen Cinema about this program that's going in the Biden um, Build Back Better plan or not and tell her how it would affect your life, that might be persuasive, you know, based on, you know, what you've shared here today about your experiences. So after you were on the Hill, you went and you worked at trade associations. Um, Those are kind of unique institutions in politics and especially D.C. Would you like to tell us how 
how trade associations work and what they do in DC and what you think every American should understand about those organizations, these special interests? Yeah. I don't want to date myself, but if you go back to de Tocqueville's book on democracy in America in like 1824 or something, he talks about he was a French aristocrat who traveled around America and noticed a lot of community organizations would form to do good things, to build roads or bridges, you know, build town squares and things. And I actually think that if you fast forward that, you've got two associations, which are voluntary groups of people around, focused around one or two issues. In my case, it was always around business sector issues, like working for beer distributors who represent the middle tier of the brewer, the distributor, and the retailer, and as beer distributors would have common common issues before government in Washington and the state level as well. And they would form an organization and then they would have like a common platform to advocate. And we have like 72,000 of them in Washington. I mean, there's the bakers, there's the chamber of commerce, there's the unions, there's all sorts of institutions out there uh, that do this. And um, I really, I saw my opportunity. So I went to work, I worked on Capitol Hill, I worked on a committee, I liked it a lot. I love small business people. I mean, American small business, they're really on the cutting edge of innovation. Imagine, you know, you open a a small business, you put your family's heart and soul into this entity, you work seven days a week, not five, not six, seven days a week. You're literally working 24 hours a day to provide, to be able to provide goods and services to other people in your community. And I've always felt like they're like the unsung hero. And 90% of jobs in America are small business jobs. At least they were, they were before the, before the pandemic, but I always love these people. I got the chance to go to the NFIB, which is an, not an association, but like an association And I started working there and I thought there were a lot of things that government was doing, that government was doing, which was making it harder for these people to earn a living and to pay their employees more. So what could we do to help them benefit their communities, their employees and their families? And I did pretty well there. Um, We were able to uh, reverse the only health care bill in America that has ever been passed and was subsequently reversed in all of the history of the country. There was a move afoot by a Republican administration and Democratic Congress to force all business people to offer the same health care benefits to everyone who worked in their enterprises. And small business people were offering health care, but maybe they couldn't offer everybody the same package. If you work 20 hours a week, you might have got a different package than if you worked 50 hours a week. And it worked pretty well. And we said, you know, there's really nothing wrong with this. And as people earn more, they provide more coverage. But the government said, no, it has to be all the same or you don't offer health care. And we discovered that like six million businesses wouldn't be able to offer the health care. It turns out the rules that they wrote, they didn't even understand on how to comply. It was a gigantic cluster. So we stepped in. We pushed repeal of Section 86. Section 89, it was one of my greatest victories. Everyone in Washington said, you're never going to do it. And I was like, you watch. And we turned it into a crusade all across the country. One former member in Wisconsin 
came back to Washington and said, David, you're going to win this fight on Section 89. I said, why is that? And he said, I was at a parade in a small town in my district, and a guy stopped me and said, are you for repeal of Section 89? And he goes, I've never heard that before. And if that's happening all all around America, you're going to win. Well, we eventually won, which was great. We prevented this from happening, being imposed on small business. It was a hard-fought campaign. I mean, you prevented... A lot of Americans from losing health insurance. Right, really, that's right. Is a lot of kind Americans. of is the context. Yeah. It's not right. that you that's don't want exactly people right. to have health care and for employers to provide good health care. It was just you know forcing every employee to have the same plan. Right. You know, even now, you go in and most places there are several different plans that you can pick depending on what you want to spend yourself um, through your employer. Right, because. Mm-hmm. Competition and diversity and innovation are all good things from a healthcare perspective, in my mind, rather than the the incentive should be what more can you offer rather than the hammer saying you offer this or you don't offer any. That's the wrong way to think about healthcare. And I'd like to note something that uh, if you won't be offended, that I think is impressive about the story you've just told is that this was before everyone had email and social media. Right, right. So the the effort that an individual has to go to in sending a letter or making a phone call is a lot more than it is today when you can just kick off an email to your member of Congress or tweet at them. That's right. That's right. I mean, it was a little bit of a different time, but we, we looked at all of our tools. We maximized all, I'm talking like an economist now, we maximized all our tools and we were successful. So that led me to go to the beer wholesalers, which was the job I love. I don't really drink a lot of beer. I'm German. I loved it because beer is, you know, thought of as a German beverage. Um, But the beer wholesalers are all family owned and operated businesses all across America. They're deeply involved in their communities and they're really great people. How does a free market economist go work for the beer wholesalers? I think this is a good question to ask. Right, because there's no free market for beer. Beer is regulated by the government at the state and local level. So even though I'm a free market economist, you know, maybe people will say you're not pure, David. But I'll say I'm not working from an open competition. I'm working from limited competition. So how do we make it as free as possible within the constraints of what we see as regulation. And we were able to do that. Um, it was a great, a great effort. I did that for a few years. And then I, because of my success there, was recruited to become the CEO of the National Association of Broadcasters, which were all the radio and TV stations in America and about 50 around the world. And that was exciting. But that was like a glamour job. Here's a guy from a working class family from Chicago walking down the red carpet. And as I would walk right down, they would announce my name and hundreds of cameras would be taking my picture. And I would kind of be smirking going, it's going to hit the cutting room floor because no one knows who I am. And I'm not really that important, you know, but it was a fun job. Then I went to teach at GW with you, went to Mason. And I've always said to folks, particularly young people who may be listening to the podcast, do what you love, do what you love, because it's, you know, you might get tempted by money early on. You might be forced to take a job because the money, everyone's circumstances are different, but if you're able to do what you love, 
my argument is you'll be better at it and in the long term you will do better financially because you love what you do like i don't i don't mind i work all the time even now as a professor but i don't mind because i love working because i love what i'm doing and i love sharing ideas with students and seeing them successful and helping them get jobs because it reflects on me as being like really committed to them being successful. Yeah, that's great. I think one of the interesting things when you, you're talking about doing what you love and there are themes in all of the things that you've talked about in your career, you know, coming from a working class family, getting to Congress and coming with those roots and feeling strongly about stewarding the money of the American people and that turning into a passion to help small business people at the National Federation of Independent Business or the beer wholesalers, you know, understanding that those small businesses are helping fellow Americans and, you know, honestly creating that revenue. You know, you're an employee, you pay taxes, you're a business owner, you pay taxes. And, you know, just watching that, you know, evolve through your career to as a political professional eventually and an economist eventually wanting to invest back in the next generation of policy leaders. So I think that's a really, really, you know, that, that common theme of you wanting to support people who are, are doing good things in society. The other thing that I really love, especially given this time that we're in where everyone is, think, is down because politics is so contentious and unpleasant is your, your expression of beliefs in the democratic process. And beliefs that, hey, yes, I can go up to my neighbor at church who is the mayor, or I can, you know, if I'm at the gym and I run into my state representative or the parade, uh, like your one case on Section 89, and say, hey, I care about this issue. Here's why. And engage in a positive interaction that expresses that to your public servant. I think that's a really lovely thing to see now when many Americans are just turned off by politics. Um, yeah. One of my favorite things that I learned at GW was from um, Gary Nordlinger, also a professor there. And he once said, and I think it's very wise, that it, when we work in politics, we forget that most Americans only think about politics every two to four years and resent all 15 minutes of that time that they do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's not only insightful, but it also says, hey, you need to have a humility and, you know, remember, you know, what it is that politics is and does, that it isn't everything, but to the extent that it matters, it's that how, how it affects um, everyday Americans. And I think, excuse me, and it's just, it's nice to hear you say, hey, I've spent my career helping other people make a difference in the political system to do good things, you know, maybe things that other people didn't always agree with, but the motives of my actions were to try to do things to make the America a better place and a healthier place. And I think that's really inspirational. Right. Um, So what are you teaching at the Sharp School these days? What classes? I'm in the middle of a graduate class called lobbying and advocacy which basically teaches people how to influence Congress. Mm-hmm. Right now, we're focused on all the different lobbying tools that people could use to influence elected officials. I also teach a class to undergrads in the spring on special interests, lobbying, and 
public policy, partisan politics, which teaches them about all these different institutionalized resources, you know, the different organizations, whether it's the teachers unions or whether it's unions in general or the Chamber of Commerce or the NFIB. So they learn about all these organizations that are out there on behalf of other constituents, their members and what they're advocating and how they do it. Because I want people to understand. I think once you pull the veil apart and you understand what's going on, it makes people go, okay, I kind of get it now. They may not like it. Well, then you can go out and change the people who are there. Or if you like it, you're like, okay, I like the government and what they're doing. And I think it's appropriate. So what do you think are, say, the three things that everyone in this country should know about how politics and policy are influenced in D.C.? Right. I think the three things, this is what I tell my students. When you look at elected officials, one, you have to understand they have economic self-interest. You know, as an economist, we're taught everybody makes decisions based upon what's good for themselves. Now, you can be a good person and make good decisions, you know, want to feed the homeless or want to, you know, help people who can't help themselves. And that's part of your economic self-interest if you put value on that. So it's not just all how much money I'm getting how much money am I keeping, et cetera. The second thing I tell them, which I worry about with our political institutions, is that power is corrupting and absolute power is absolutely corrupting. That is to say that the longer you stay, the longer you're involved, the more tempting it is to lose your way. And I think we saw this with the uprise against the swamp four years ago, A lot of people don't like the fact that, you know, you go work on Capitol Hill. I've done all these communication studies on interacting with Congress and like 50 percent of lobbyists are former Hill staffers. So generally, the path is work on a campaign. The man or woman gets elected. They hire you as a staffer. You work for them for a few years. You become a lobbyist. Then you cash out and you make a lot of money. Now, I'm not against people being successful. But I think we all need to be aware of that and maybe filter that that into into the decision making, because there really is that's not a swamp, but there's a pool here of people who are like in and people who are maybe not so in. And I'd Mm -hmm. like to have the country reflect people of all types, not just the people who can whisper in the ear of someone. Having said that, as a person who used to whisper in ears myself, um, and the third thing I think is that everybody can make a difference. You know, I am a, as you can tell, hopefully I'm an enthusiastic, upbeat, positive guy. And I think that if you're just earnest and authentic and you're smart, you can make a difference in whatever you decide to do in your life. My journey was in politics and in public policy. And I've done I think I've done well. I've enjoyed my life. I continue to enjoy my life with my students. Uh, but you got to think, am I, making a, am I making a difference here? And is it worthwhile? And I think in my case, it is. And I think when people get engaged in policy, helping to shape policy, which affects so many people, either positively or negatively, you almost have a moral duty to be engaged, if that helps. No, that, I think that makes sense. 
I, as a conservationist uh, who, who works in the swamp, I would like to remind you that swamps are vital ecosystems. Yeah. yeah. That's a joke. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I don't even necessarily think it was, you know, the, a reflection of just, you know, the 2016 election. I think that Americans everywhere, you know, want to understand their government better and want a government that does work for them and reflects, you know, the diversity of interests and perspective and background of the American people um, instead of just, uh, you know, the perception of the revolving door, which is the nomenclature for what um, Dr. Rare just described right. about, you know, you go, you work on a campaign, you work on a hill and you go and then become a lobbyist after a period of time. So yeah. I, I, and I, I want to go back to, to another thing that you mentioned earlier, talking about being for transparency in government uh, and how that can build faith in institutions. I know you've done a lot of time thinking about that. Um, what are some key things that you would like to see happen in terms of increasing governmental transparency in such a way that it helps build up the faith of Americans in their government institutions? Yeah. Well, the first thing I learned after about seven years in this endeavor is that elected officials, no matter what their party designation, really don't want transparency. They really like it when people don't really know all the specifics on everything. It worries them. And my argument's always been, you know, it's their money. They should they have a right to know. And their argument has been, well, they can just find it if they want it. And I think, number two, we're going to see more transparency because with the digital age, it's making transparency a lot easier. You know, so we can ideally I would like to see all the expenditure of the government available to every American to see. Now, that's a Herculean idea. But if that ever happens someday, I think that hopefully they'll put a small plaque up next to it and say, this was Dr. David Rare's idea 50 years ago or whatever. But I think that makes people accountable. And I think I'm driving for transparency and accountability. We have some states that are moving in the right direction and as they and cities and towns. And I would say to your listeners, if you're involved in transparency or if you want to be involved in transparency, just start doing basic things like. When you see elected officials, you say, you know, it'd be great if we had more transparency, because the more they hear that from people, the more they're going to say, you know, that's a good idea, because still people don't talk about that enough. And I think that's something that most Americans would like to see is, you know, appropriate transparency and accessibility in terms of the government. Right. Now, I do have one exclusion. I don't want transparency on national defense issues. I don't want to give our adversaries or those people who don't like America around the world the blueprint to everything we're doing. That's where I would put some limits on it. But I think for a lot of programs and a lot of spending, we would know what's working. We'd get a better idea of what's not working. And um, I think that helps make everybody better. So this has absolutely flown by in terms of time. We should do this more often. I always love catching up with you. Um, But I would like to ask you, if you could go back and tell teenage Dave one bit of advice, what would it be? Listen to people's perspectives harder. When I was 14, 15 years old, I was very committed to less government, not a libertarian, but almost libertarian, where the government that governs least, governs best. I still believe that. But I've also discovered through my years 
that people come from a lot of different areas than where I came from, have a lot of different experiences, have a lot of different needs. And if I had to go back, I would just say, work harder not to answer questions, but to listen, not to provoke what you think should be done, but find out what they really want done. Because I think it makes the conversation richer and makes the solutions better. That is a great place to wrap up our discussion today, because I think we all should be listening to each other more and prove the DC swamp pundits wrong when they say that we're all divided and polarized. Right. Uh, Exactly. I think uh, the great takeaways from your story, again, listen to other people, hear from them, go out and do something that you believe is making your community better and engage in the political process uh, when you can. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was, this was wonderful. Well, thank you, Sarah, for having me. And I just want to remind people, the Rainey Center is a great institution, and I would urge people to support it and to encourage it because they're doing great work here in D.C. and all across America. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Policy for the People, the official podcast of the Joseph Rainey Center for Public Policy. I'm Sarah Hunt, president and CEO of the Rainey Center, and your host, Regular guest hosts include our senior advisor, Bert McClellan, and our vice president of external affairs, Mia Heck. Our podcast is produced by the ever so able Grant Haver. Our podcast project manager is Jamie Majdi, and our technical manager is Shannon Callahan. Thank you again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.